a teenage girl offers to help her family with the household chore of mowing their lawn on a hot summer day and goes missing in the hours that follow. Was a man in a truck seen knocking on the front door responsible for her disappearance? And would a serial killer claiming responsibility for her death years later be believable? A young boy plays in a front yard at a South Carolina military base while his father mows the lawn. Where did he go? And could he still be alive 48 years later? There are a number of missing persons cases right here in the Carolinas, and some have received more media attention than others. These are the stories that tug at our heartstrings, make us pray it never happens to anyone in our families, and wonder if there is still any way to find closure for these missing persons and their loved ones. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 20, Missing from the Front Yard. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Missing in the Carolinas. If you're a parent, you probably remember the days of letting your kids play in your front yard, or maybe you're just now in that phase of your life. My own kids would spend hours playing in our driveway and yard, under my careful eye, and yes, there were probably times when I would run quickly into my house to get something before coming back out. But we also lived in a neighborhood where there were many other houses around, and we were often not the only people outside enjoying the fresh air. Things were different in the 1970s and 1980s, especially when you lived in a rural area. I can personally recall one story from my own childhood in Texas. When I was in the third grade, a friend called me at my home one Sunday morning, asking me if I wanted to go to church with her family. I said, sure told my parents I was going to wait for them in the front yard, and went outside alone to sit on a low rock wall situated in front of our house. Our house also happened to be on a pretty busy main road. A car pulled up with a man inside. I was a little confused because I didn't know him, but he rolled down the window and said he'd been asked to give me a ride to church. He probably mentioned my friend's name. Now, looking back, I'm not sure who this man was, or why he was picking me up. I guess he was a church member who lived close to me and was doing my friend's family a favor. But I was so young at the time, I didn't think to question him. Everything was fine. He drove me to church. I met up with my friend. What I failed to do was tell my parents my ride had arrived. They looked out the window at some point and noticed I was no longer on the rock wall. They had no idea if my friend and her family had picked me up or if I had been kidnapped. They couldn't figure out if they should call the police or not, or if I had simply been careless in not letting them know that I had left. When I returned home a few hours later, they were furious, and I learned a valuable lesson in how not to terrify my parents in the future. The story of Eva de Brule in South Carolina is very different. It was a hot day in Catawba, near Rock Hill, on June 29, 1977, when 15-year-old Eva set about doing her regular chore of mowing her family's yard. Her dad, a mechanic named Willard, had headed off on a job around 11 a.m. Eva's mother, Opal, a third shift worker, was asleep inside the family's home. When Willard DeBrule returned home around 4 p.m., Eva was nowhere to be found. Her older sister, Tammy, said Eva hadn't been home when she returned from her job at a local textile mill. She hadn't walked over to eat lunch with her grandmother. 
who lived in a separate home on the family's nine-acre property. Eva's rubber flip-flops she had worn that morning were on the front lawn, and a pot of iced tea and a glass were inside the house on the kitchen counter. When Eva's family searched the home, her room was exactly as they had left it. All her clothes were in her closet, her $54 in babysitting money she had saved still in her purse, and the television was left on in the living room. A chair reclined as if someone had been there watching a program. When they talked to Eva's grandmother, she mentioned she had seen a man in a blue or green truck with a white top drive onto the property and knock on the front door before Eva must have gone missing. The grandmother didn't think anything of the visitor because Willard was a mechanic and people often stopped by for help with their vehicles. A man got out of the truck and appeared to knock on the front door and then drove off. The grandmother said he returned in the truck about 10 minutes later and then she got busy inside of her house and lost track of him. She didn't know if he had gotten out of the truck on the second visit. The man was described as being a white male with the medium height and build. He was wearing a light green shirt and dark green pants. A glass Coke bottle was later found in the yard next to where the truck had been parked, and it didn't seem to belong to anyone in the family. The man and this truck were never identified, and it wasn't clear whether he had any connection to Eva's disappearance or not. For the most part, Eva, who was planning on attending Rock Hill High School that fall, was described by her family as a homebody who mostly spent her spare time babysitting local children and singing in the church choir. They didn't believe she had run away, especially since she hadn't taken anything with her. She likely wasn't even wearing shoes. At the time of her disappearance, Eva was a petite girl standing about 5 foot 2 and weighing approximately 105 pounds. She had long, straight blonde hair with bangs, blue eyes, and wore eyeglasses. She was wearing a pink floral print sweater and light blue floral print shorts the last time her family members saw her. If you've listened to episode number 10, The Unconfirmed Victims of Larry Jean Bell, You'll recall that Bell continued to torment the families of his victims in two cases before their bodies had been found. He would make phone calls, requesting to talk to the sister of Sherry Faye Smith, whom he had abducted from their driveway, giving the Smith family hope that their missing daughter could still be alive. In my opinion, continuing to torture a family in this type of way requires a special kind of evil. In the case of Eva de Brule, the anguished family had a similar experience. An article ran in the Charlotte Observer on July 11, 1977, with the headline, Man Charged in Case of Missing South Carolina Teen. When I read it, I realized a local resident had capitalized on the DeBrul family's pain and desperation and attempted to blackmail them. A Rock Hill man named Daniel Bulware had called the local sheriff five different times, demanding $2,000 from the DeBrul family if they didn't want Eva harmed. At that point, Eva had been missing a few weeks. The sheriff tracked down the source of the calls from a pool hall located next to Daniel Bulware's home. Police investigated his home after his arrest and found no indication that Eva was there or had ever been there. Bulware was charged for the attempted blackmail and released on bond. In another Charlotte Observer article I found from August 18, 1984, titled, 
Seven Years Searching for a Teen, reporter David Perlmutt described a large search investigators had organized for Lansford Canal State Park in Chester County. Willard DeBrule told the reporter he had spent years combing through the woods near their family home, wondering if Eva was out there. He estimated that over time, he had covered every inch of woods within 15 miles of their home. Authorities organized the search in 1984 because of a tip they had received from a notorious serial killer named Henry Lee Lucas. At the time, Lucas was incarcerated in Georgetown, Texas, after confessing to the murders of two women there. He began talking about the hundreds of people he had murdered after serving 10 years in prison for murdering his own mother. Law enforcement officers from all over the country began visiting Lucas in Texas. Because Lucas had spent many years as a drifter, traveling through the Carolinas with a friend named Otis Toole between the years of 1976 and 1981, investigators wondered if he could be responsible for some of their cold cases. He told York County Sheriff's Detective Birch Grant that he had picked up a young woman matching Eva's description around the time she disappeared, murdered her, and then left her body in the Lansford Canal State Park, pointing out the area on a map investigators showed him. But after searching for two weeks, the search for Eva's remains turned up nothing. Although Lucas is still believed to have committed many senseless murders, he was likely relishing in the preferential treatments he received from a special task force that was put together to help coordinate investigations from all over the country. He would be taken from the Williamson County Jail in Texas and out to restaurants and cafes, and many times he wasn't even handcuffed. Journalists eventually began to piece together that Lucas couldn't possibly have been at all the crime scenes he claimed to have been at once they dug into his work and arrest records. The case of his confession of Eva DeBrule's murder was likely false. Henry Lee Lucas was the subject of season two of the Netflix original series, The Confession Tapes. Eva's disappearance was the family's second tragedy. Four years before she went missing, a drunk driver hit and killed her 11-year-old brother in front of their house as he and a friend walked to a church playground to play basketball. If Eva is alive, she would be 58 years old today. If you have any information about the whereabouts of Eva DeBrul, contact the York County Sheriff's Department at 803-628-3059. Before we continue, let's take a minute for a word from our sponsor. I've always enjoyed writing fiction, but I didn't really get serious about it until I was in my 30s. After submitting to the WOW Flash Fiction Contest a few times, I was thrilled when I placed as a runner-up with my piece titled In the Depths. WOW still hosts a quarterly writing contest every three months, and I highly recommend entering it. The entry fees are minimal, and you can also purchase a critique to get feedback on your story once the contest concludes. The mission of this contest is to inspire creativity, great writing, and provide well-rewarded recognition to contestants. The contest is open globally. Age is of no matter and entries must be in English. And the best part is that the contest is open to all genres, from romance to science fiction, to thriller suspense, to literary fiction. Literary agent Maria Rogers with the Tobias Literary Agency will be serving as the judge for the finalists in this contest. You can learn more about the contest guidelines at wow-womenonwriting.com. 
click on the Contest tab. Submit your entry by February 28th for the Winter Contest. And now, let's get back to the show. The next case I want to talk about also happened in the early 1970s. And like the case of Episode 11, this case involves a disappearance from a military base. Except unlike the case of Diane Moon and Mark Yoli, this child was in close proximity to his parent when he went missing. It's also difficult to find any of the original news articles that may have run around the time of the disappearance. Michael Woodward was nine years old on April 23, 1972. His father, Major Joe Woodward, was a staff judge advocate serving at the Fort Jackson military base. On this particular Sunday morning, Major Woodward was out just doing an ordinary everyday chore, much like Eva DeBrule was doing, mowing the lawn. Michael was playing in the yard nearby. At some point during the morning, just before lunchtime, Michael simply disappeared. After searching for his son on foot, Major Woodward alerted the authorities, thinking Michael had wandered off and gotten lost in the surrounding woods. The search party that gathered together in the search was massive and included more than 400 soldiers, volunteers on horseback, motorcycles, and in jeeps, and three helicopters from a nearby medical unit in the Fort Jackson Aviation Division. But the search party turned up no leads. I have a lot of questions about this case, as I'm sure many people do. Michael disappeared between 9 a.m. and noon. A lot can happen in the span of three hours. I'm not sure if he was playing outside the entire time, within his father's line of vision, or if he was going in and out of the house. I don't know if any cars drove by that may have been suspicious, or if there was any reason to suspect Michael had literally been abducted from the front yard of his home. This is the type of information that would have been found in archive news articles, and I can't seem to find any. Regardless of the amount of information available to the public, in 2014, Two investigators reviewing cold cases with the Richland County Sheriff's Department requested permission to reopen the case. According to a newspaper article that ran in the state newspaper on June 6, 2014, a man named Patrick O'Connor, Deputy Director for Emergency Services, spent about five years reviewing Michael's file in his spare time. O'Connor received permission from Fort Jackson commanders to reopen the case which allowed him to enlist the help of military police investigator Carlos Monday. O'Connor was able to get the case listed on the National Crime Information Center database and with the National Center for Exploited and Missing Children, which means that the case is visible to law enforcement agencies across the nation. Michael's parents are no longer alive, but he has an uncle still living who hopes for resolution in his disappearance. O'Connor traveled to Greer, South Carolina, in order to obtain a DNA sample from Michael's uncle. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children went to Texas, where Michael's sister lives, and took a DNA sample from her. These two collections have ensured a DNA profile for Michael is in the system. If investigators ever locate any remains or a person who could be Michael, there will be DNA to test against. If Michael is still alive, he would be 57 years old today. When he went missing, he was wearing brown striped pants and blue sneakers. He stood about 4 feet 8 and weighed 70 pounds. He had blonde hair and blue eyes. Michael's left eye had been injured in a fishing accident prior to his disappearance. He was having visual problems with that eye because of the accident, 
and he may have had to have the eye surgically removed and replaced with a glass one. Anyone with information about the disappearance of Michael Woodward should call the Fort Jackson Military Police at 803-751-1418, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children at 800-THE-LOST, or Midlands Crime Stoppers at 888-274-6372. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also now on Instagram and Facebook, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. If you want to visit my blog and read more about true crime cases from all over the country, including the ones featured here, visit missinginthecarolinas.com. Recent blog posts you may be interested in include the murder of Florida realtor Margot DeLemon in 1981, North Carolina mom Stacy Hunsucker, who prosecutors claim was murdered when her husband slipped an overdose of Visine in her food and drink, and the mystery of Kevin Collins, the first missing child whose face was featured on a milk carton. There's a lot to dive into there, so I hope you'll stop by. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have to support writers at www wow-womenonwriting.com Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson.